Acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin, let's make sure that we are in fellowship, ready to study the word this morning. So we'll take a few moments for silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege and opportunity to gather together around your word this morning to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to study your word and to uh, worship you freely. Father, we thank you for the continued protection we've had uh, for this nation, that there have been no more terrorist attacks, and we pray that you would continue to watch over us and secure our nation. We know that our only security is in you. Father, we continue to pray for those who are serving in Iraq. We pray for our military leaders, for those who are in charge of uh, uh, strategy, for those who are taking care with the individual details in Iraq. We pray that you would give them wisdom, that you would provide the correct intelligence, that we might find those who are at the root of these attacks, continuous, continuous attacks against our troops. Father, we thank you for Tom's safe return and the fact that he's back here now and uh, pray that he would have a good time of relaxation during the next few weeks as he uh, readjusts to being home. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you for your word that gives us information and direction, gives us insight into who you are and what your plans and policies are during this church age. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we would be receptive to the challenge to think biblically. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. After six or seven weeks of introduction where we have gone through the doctrine of the ascension and the session of Christ to show that relationship of Christ's ascension as the final event in his strategic victory at the cross, we realize that it was that ascension to heaven and his present session in heaven that forms the basis, the historical basis, for the distribution of spiritual gifts. It shows that there's something different that is happening in this church age in this thing called spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts is a subject that is 
something that's generated a tremendous amount of controversy and division over the last 100, 150 years, especially with the uh, arrival of the so-called charismatic movement and Pentecostal movement at the turn of the 20th century. Actually, the charismatic movement began uh, on uh, New Year's Eve in 1901, so it is truly a 20th century phenomenon. But it is based on a misunderstanding and a distortion of the spiritual gifts, and those misunderstandings and distortions continue to pervade us today. And often it is these doctrines, these confusions are promulgated uh, under the guise of much that is known today as the church growth movement. Church growth movement really has its source out of Fuller Seminary, Fuller Theological Seminary, which was named after a, an evangelist of the 40s and 50s who was quite well known and fairly solid doctrinally by the name of Charles E. Fuller. And yet, Fuller Seminary started drifting into what was known as Neo-Orthodox fairly early on, back in the 60s. They had a man in their missions department by the name of Peter Wagner. And Peter Wagner uh, <clears throat> began to investigate church churches that grew rapidly. What are the principles that uh, some churches follow that cause them to grow rapidly and other other churches don't ever seem to grow? And that may have some benefit in some limited area, but basically it ignores the dynamics of the Holy Spirit, spiritual dynamics that are going on in the world in terms of negative volition and what the uh, world is looking for in terms of religion and religious activity, and it denies the basic mechanics of the sin nature and the role, as well as the role of the Holy Spirit in a church, what happens in the church growth movement is it puts all the emphasis on growth and numbers, and the su- subtle idea that's embedded in the thought is that numbers equate to success, and that equates to the blessing of God. And the problem with all of that is there's no basis for saying that you can have a Noah who goes out and preaches the gospel for 120 years and doesn't have a single convert. And God says, well done, good and faithful servant. In other words, we don't have a theology where failure is just as successful as large numbers and success. And if you get into the church growth literature, one of the things that they emphasize is if your church is going to grow, then you need to have people identifying their spiritual gifts. And so you need to make sure that in your new members' classes, you have... Uh, teaching on the spiritual gifts, and you can they have all kinds of little tests that they can pass out and people can take, and you can identify your spiritual gifts, because if you're not operating in the realm of your spiritual gift, then that church is going to uh, not grow. Its, its growth is going to be uh, cut down and because people aren't doing what they're supposed to do. You don't want people coming into a church and just sitting in the pew and taking in doctrine and studying the Word. They're not going to grow that way. They have to be out there using their spiritual gifts. And so there is a complete misrepresentation of the purpose and operation of the gifts in terms of the body of Christ. So we are going to address a lot of these things as we go through 1 Corinthians 12, because there was just as much confusion in the Corinthian church over spiritual gifts as the modern church. And they had all the same problems, 
and for some reason you always get the charismatics who want to think that if we go back to the way it was in the first century, then everything was going to be wonderful. And that we will address in this process is just simply not true. There's something in us that when things aren't going the way we want them to go, when the church doesn't seem to be as strong as it should be, or life doesn't seem to be as as stable as it ought to be, or there are things going on historically that are threatening to our national security, that we want to go back to a calmer time, a a more prosperous time. There's that tendency to be nostalgic and to think that, oh, if we could just go back to the good old days. Well, frankly, the good old days in the church weren't that great in the early church. And people think, oh, if we could just go back to that enthusiasm they had in Acts. Well, they had a lot of problems in Acts. They had Ananias and Sapphira. They couldn't even think about the Trinity because they didn't have the word Trinity. They couldn't think about the hypostatic union because they didn't have the word hypostatic union. Uh, They couldn't think about a lot of things because uh, they hadn't developed the concepts yet. Even though the ideas are embedded in the Scripture, There's a lot of vocabulary which we've developed over the years to explain what the Bible teaches, and that's the process of growth. And that was the intention of God the Father in his plan, is that all the information would be given in the New Testament revelation. In fact, much of the apostolic year, they didn't even have a completed canon of Scripture. So why is this supposedly the golden age? You didn't have all the information that was necessary. But uh, people are not usually not very bright, and they're very superficial, and they think, oh, that if we could have just gone back to those times. Well, you know, if you go back to those times, you also have to start cooking on an open wood fire. You don't have indoor plumbing, and there's a number of other things you don't have. So nostalgia isn't what it's uh, thought to be. So we need to get into our passage and look at spiritual gifts, and this morning we'll primarily just introduce the subject. Our first verse, 1 Corinthians 12.1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. Now I want you to notice that in this first verse there is a word right in the middle that is italicized, and that is the word gifts. And that is italicized because the word gift is not in the original. So I think that just starting off, you might want to take your pen and just draw a line through that so the passage will reflect the original just a little more. But let's start off and just analyze the verse before we go very far. It begins with the Greek phrase peride. And peride, as we have seen, is a key structural marker throughout 1 Corinthians. The reason Paul wrote this epistle was in part to to answer certain questions that the Corinthians had sent to him, and he was responding to those questions, and they had to do with some pretty crucial issues that that congregation was facing. So the first six chapters of 1 Corinthians dealt with the fundamental problem in Corinth. And the fundamental problem in Corinth, I'll put this back on the screen in a minute, the fundamental problem in Corinth was human viewpoint. And we all have human viewpoint in our souls from the instant we're born. You were born at X date, 
and at X date, the most dominant feature of your personality is you have a sin nature. Now, that sin nature is, has an area of strength which produces human good, and it has an area of weakness that operates in the realm of personal sin. And this sin nature that you have and that I have is oriented towards autonomy. And autonomy means basically self-law. We are committed to running life on our terms. We are suppressing, from the moment of our birth, suppressing truth in unrighteousness. Now, that doesn't mean we can't exercise positive volition of God consciousness. But this is the orientation of the sin nature. And the sin nature, uh, the sin nature is attracted, like a, like iron filings to a magnet, is attracted to human viewpoint thinking. And so whatever culture you grow up in, whether you grow up in a somewhat uh, evangelical home in the 20th century United States or you're growing up in a atheistic secular home in the former Soviet Union or if you're uh, growing up in a secular home in the United States or if you're growing up in just some pagan uh, idol-worshipping home in Corinth in ancient Greece, it doesn't matter. There's an affinity between your sin nature and the human viewpoint thinking that dominates that culture. And that human viewpoint thinking that dominates that culture at that time is defined in the Bible with the Greek word cosmos, K-O-S-M-O-S, which we call cosmic thinking, spelling it with a K rather than a C. And it has to do with that thinking that has an affinity for the sin nature and promoting the autonomy of the sin nature. Now that's going to manifest itself in many, many different ways, and one of its most uh, successful manifestations is an attraction to religious systems as promoted by Satan. Satan is the uh, arch inventor of religious systems, and they go back to at least the Tower of Babel, if not before. We just don't have details of what the religious systems were in the antediluvian age prior to the flood. But they are religious systems, they're counterfeit religions, ways to get to God and ways to impress God. So what happens is that as we grow up and mature, we pick up in our thinking all kinds of ideas and concepts and values that come out of this human viewpoint thought dominated or set forth in the cosmic system around us and often uh, in in uh, in encased in a religious system. And then we come to the cross. And at the cross we understand one doctrinal principle clearly, and only one. And that is that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins. So at the cross we express faith alone in Christ alone, and we're saved. But guess what? Our thinking is still loaded with all of this garbage that we've picked up from the cosmic system around us. And some of that garbage has, has a, the ring of truth to it. And because Satan is very successful in counterfeiting the truth. It sounds good. It works for us. It makes us feel good. We're very comfortable. It can involve conservative political views. It may involve 
uh, conservative economic views. It may involve a lot of sound uh, ethical and moral principles, but it's been encased in a system of thought that is oriented towards autonomy. It's not oriented toward God. So there needs to be an overhaul of that thinking, a complete overhaul. And by an overhaul, I don't mean just calling in a, an interior de- decorator to uh, paint the living room blue instead of white or bringing in a, uh, somebody to lay some new carpet in the house or to tear up the old carpet and put down hardwoods, but a complete overhaul of the system. What happens if there's not th- that overhaul is that these ideas are brought over into our post-Christian experience, and we start using that frame of reference to interpret or actually to reinterpret the Bible. And instead of ending up with objective biblical truth, we end up with a, with a real distortion of biblical truth. And this is exactly what was going on in Corinth. As they came out of a background that was dominated by idolatry, and in this passage, idolatry is going to represent just the false religious systems of, of Greece at that time, and the most popular religious systems were known as the mystery religions. And this is, if once we get to an understanding of the mystery religions, which we won't get to this morning, but we'll touch on them briefly, I think I'm going to wait till we do our real analysis of the mystery religions when we get uh, directly into the tongues issue. But if we, once we understand the mystery religions, it's going to be very clear to you just exactly what is going on in Corinth. Because in the mystery religions, there was an emphasis on ecstatics. Uh, and ecstasy is a technical term here. It's not just meaning happy. It's not just being on an emotional high, although that's certainly involved. It is getting yourself worked up emotionally in a religious setting so that you think that the God or gods are speaking through you, where you have direct intuitive connection with the God, and so that you know intuitively that God is speaking through you. So it's a, it's a complete rejection of reason, and it's a complete rejection of rash, rationalism, uh, empiricism, and it's a complete rejection of logic. All you know is that you've had this overwhelming emotional experience with God, and God did something, and it I didn't do it. It must be God. And so there is this presumption that you know exactly what was going on, and it's just a, it's just a facade. It's one of Satan's greatest tools to distract people because we become more impressed with our own experience and our own emotions. And these are profound emotions. You talk to people who've gone through this kind of religious experience, and it's overwhelming. And it's the kind of thing that they don't get over easily, and if they don't have a, a sound ability to think, and if they don't have a strong character, you hit some kind of experience like this, then it's devastating. I've seen this happen with, with uh, dozens of people 
that I have known well over the years who were well-grounded doctrinally, and then they go through some kind of crisis experience in life, some kind of difficulty. Maybe it's an extended situation in life, and then their guard goes down, and all of a sudden they have some sort of religious experience, and they throw out all the doctrine they held before, and they, they jump completely into... Uh, Pentecostal charismatic type of theology and often pick up some extremely bizarre ideas. I think some of the greatest, uh, I, don't, I wouldn't say some of the greatest heretics of our age, but there are certainly men who graduated from Dallas Seminary who went through this and got involved with some of the greatest heresy of our age, and they almost all went through the same type of of situation. It's almost paradigmatic. By that I mean it's almost a model. And that model goes something like this. The man is very intellectual. The man's very scholarly and he spends all of his time studying. And somewhere along the line he shifts from realizing this has to do ultimately with his own walk with the Holy Spirit and it becomes just an academic thing of learning doctrine. So what happens is when you lose that walk with the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit and that emphasis on personal application to where that study of the Word becomes nothing more than academic study, and that's something we all have to guard against, then the spiritual life begins to dry up because there's no spiritual life there. And you think you've created this illusion that everything is going great. Of course, this guy's got a couple of PhDs in uh, theology and Greek, and he teaches a Bible every day, and he's in one of the greatest evangelical seminaries, or he works for one of the greatest uh, evangelical ministries that's come along, and the guy is really solid. And he rides along on that for several years. But inside the home, what's happening is, because it's, it's a pseudo-spirituality, Frequently what happens is the wife will feel the impact of that, and she will sense it and intuit it more than she will know it uh, intellectually because women are just that way. And the next thing you know, she begins to feel a vacuum in her, in the spiritual life, in the home, and in her life. And so she'll start looking elsewhere for a real or meaningful experience. And women have a tendency to be oriented towards the emotional anyway and towards the subjective because they're responders. That's the way they're made. And the next thing you know, and this happened, it's, it, it, it happened in almost every single case of these guys, and I'm talking about several, several dozen that I know about. The wife comes along and she starts getting attracted towards a charismatic movement. And the next thing you know, she starts telling her husband, if you want to have real spirituality, you have to find what I found. The next thing you know, this guy, in order to save his marriage, is jumping the theological fence, and he's over there in charismatic land. And this happened to three professors at Dallas Seminary when I was there in the mid-'80s in what was called the Vineyard Movement at that time. And the Vineyard Movement was founded by Peter Wagner, who I mentioned earlier as one of the uh, founding fathers of the church growth movement. And another pastor in Southern California by the name of John Wimber. And John Wimber himself went through this same kind of paradigm. He wasn't even a believer, and his wife became a believer. And then she got involved with a uh, charismatic group, and it was his wife. And in almost all of these cases, and I just heard of another instance recently. I won't mention the individual because I don't know all of the details. I did tremendous research and interview on the material I've covered 
with you already. In fact, back in the late 80s and early 90s, I went out to Southern California and attended various conferences at the Vineyard Church and had a, an hour and a half long personal interview with Peter Wagner in his office. So, and then the three professors that all caved into this during the 80s at Dallas were, two of them were my Hebrew professors and I was uh, fairly close to one of them. And then the third man I had for a couple of homiletics courses. So I was pretty involved with all of that when it was happening and was, wrote several, uh, lengthy research papers for courses I was doing on the history of Pentecostalism. Uh, back at that time. So it just is a, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, men, I think, have a tendency and a, and a weakness in, in the male psyche to be oriented to something that is purely intellectual and to somehow make this uh, break between the intellectual application and real application of walking by the Spirit. And on the other si- side, I think that there is a general trend uh, for women to be a little more oriented to the subjective and the emotional, and especially when the man isn't providing the right spiritual leadership, uh, it's very easy for a woman to become distracted. And the problem is we live in an age when so much of the spiritual life is taught as emotion and experience is emphasized and how you feel about God. And so much in life is emphasized today in terms of feeling. And if you get on the television, you're sitting around at, I don't know what time it comes on, in the morning if you're home or in the afternoon, and you watch Dr. Phil, and you just observe him and the questions that he asks, trying to get to understand a situation, write down how many times you hear the word feel. Well, how did you feel about that? Well, what did he do then? Well, how did that make you feel? And over and over again, it's this idea of finding out how somebody feels. And it's very subjective. And as soon as you get into that, it's just like I, I, I get into this every now and then. In fact, recently I was <coughs> talking with someone who was not in a doctrinal church, not coming from a doctrinal background, and and they were involved in a, 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 some difficult situations in their life. And they had gone through some, some uh, counseling. And they were telling me about all of this stuff that they were going through. And all of a sudden I felt like I had stepped out of a nice, clean, objective understanding of the Word. And I was walking through, uh, through quicksand wearing snowshoes. And it was just, just a terrible... You, you so mired down in all of this the intricacy of all of this emotion and everything, suddenly objectivity and clarity was lost. So we have to be very careful. And so much of what's happening today is, at its very core is a distortion of the, not only the spiritual life, but also spiritual gifts. And it's the same thing that was going on in Corinth. It's that people are growing up in a human viewpoint society. A pagan society, whether it's pagan Greece or pagan America, you're growing up in a pagan society where you have been basically brainwashed and indoctrinated in the cultural principles of how to make life work apart from God. And you don't know the depths to which your soul has been compromised by all of the autonomous 
religious principles that are floating around in our culture. And by religious principles, I don't necessarily mean that it's overt, organized religion. Much of psychology is a form of religion. And even atheism, remember, is a, statement, is a religious statement. See, people, people today, Satan has attacked uh, so much through vocabulary, as we'll, we'll see in this study, that we people have been taught that religion has to do with something formal, something that has to do with certain kinds of terminology. But religion is any kind of statement about God. Therefore, everybody is a theologian. Most people are very shallow theologians. Most people are very uh, confused theologians. But anybody who believes anything about God is a theologian. And some people don't believe anything about God, and they're an atheistic theologian. And believe me, there are many PhDs in this country who are atheistic theologians, so don't think that that's some sort of an oxymoron. Uh, maybe it is, but it's not, um, it's not contradictory. So we have to think uh, consistently and biblically about all of these things. So uh, we have to follow Paul's reasoning here. He starts off saying, now concerning spiritual gifts. This is another problem we had to face. Back in, back in 7, one, we, they addressed a problem with the uh, lawsuits or, or with marriage uh, in, in uh, chapter 7. In chapter 8, we saw them dealing with the problem of the food sacrificed to idols. Here in chapter 12, and, and chapter 8, 9, 10, or 11, all dealt with issues related to the practice in the local church from the meat sacrifice to idols to the Lord's table and the role of men and women in the, in the church. All of that was related. In chapter 12, we're going to deal with spiritual gifts in 12, 13, and 14. And in chapter 16, we're going to deal with, with uh, the issue related to giving and finances. So every time Paul shifts to answering a different question, he introduces it with this Greek phrase, peride. And it should be translated now about this or about this next question or now concerning this next thing, uh, spiritual gifts. And the word that's translated spiritual gifts in most Bibles is not, doesn't include the word gifts. It's the Greek word pneumaticone. Pneumaticone, which is the genitive form of the word pneumaticos. And we've run into pneumaticos a few times already. It is simply an adjective that describes something spiritual, that which pertains to the spirit, whether that's lowercase human spirit or uppercase holy spirit, or that which pertains to the spiritual life. So the context is going to tell you what we're talking about. Now, this is a genitive plural, so it should be literally translated, now concerning uh, the spirituals. Now concerning the spirituals. Now, you say, well, where do we get the idea that he's talking about gifts? Well, that comes in in verse 4. In verse 4, we're introduced to another word that is used through the remainder of the chapter, and that is the Greek word charisma. And this is where we get our English word charisma. And once again, we see that this is a word that is a solid, sound, biblical word. Charisma. In fact, every one of us is genuinely and truly a charismatic. Because a charismatic is someone who believes in the spiritual gifts. And we all believe in the spiritual gifts. So I don't want to shock you too much. When you woke up this morning, you may not have realized that at church this morning you were going to discover you were really a charismatic. 
but you are charismatic in the biblical sense of the term and not in the modern perverted sense of the term. And I will, of course, I don't get this much now because I don't have the uh, church phone in my house, but for years when I've had my had a church phone number located in my house, uh, hardly a month will go by that I don't receive two or three phone calls that will begin something like this. Pastor, do you, I, I thought about visiting your church this Sunday. Do you all believe in the spiritual gifts? Or do you, do you believe in the filling of the Spirit? And of course, I know what they're asking. And they're asking from a uh, Pentecostal perspective, do we believe in all of the spiritual gifts? And do we believe in their perverted notion of the filling of the Holy Spirit, which has to do with a mystical view and not a epistemological or character view as we hold? And so that's what they're they're asking, and you'll run into that if you're talking to somebody at work or someone in your family comes out of a charismatic or Pentecostal background. They'll say, well, we believe in the spiritual gifts, which is one of the most idiotic, uninformed, arrogant statements I've ever heard anybody use. But see, this is Satan's technique. See, you watch this, you see this in politics. And you'll see it all the time. Satan always uses this, same, this, this lie technique. They take some phrase and they say, we believe in this and you don't. And then they start accusing the, the believers uh, of not, and, and non-charismatics of not believing in the spiritual gifts. And they'll say, well, we believe in healing and you non-charismatics don't believe in healing. I mean, I had a semi- one of these men who used to be a seminary professor at Dallas Seminary published in his book that people who don't believe in the uh, charismatic gifts, in the uh, gifts of healing, don't believe in healing. It doesn't matter what they do in their prayer meeting. When they pray for the sick, they're just going through the motions and acting like they do. But if they really believed in healing, then they would be out there having healing services. And that's just a lie and a perversion and a distortion of the truth. And once again, it reveals that Satan is at the core because Satan is a liar and he's the father of liars. And there is so much that has been stated erroneously by by Pentecostal and Charismatics about those who don't believe in it as if we don't believe in the reality of the Holy Spirit, that we don't believe that the Holy Spirit energizes the believer's life, or that we believe we don't believe in any... If we don't believe in the gift of tongues, then we don't believe in any spiritual gifts. And that is just a lie. The word where we get the gift idea is charisma. And the root word of charisma is those, related in those first few letters, charis, which is the Greek word for grace. And so this has to do with something that is given by grace. And anything given by grace is a gift. It is a favor bestowed. So the word charisma is used in this chapter in parallelism to pneumaticone, and so when you put the two words together, you come up with the idea of a spiritual gift. It is a grace gift that has to do with the spiritual life. So in verse 1, Paul says, now we're going to address the subject of spiritual, of the spiritual things that are gifts given to the church, the body of Christ. And then he calls them brethren, which reminds us that they are all believers. Now, this is important. 
when Paul addresses this, this is not just the fact that this is something stylistic or he's just being nice to the Corinthians at this point and he just wants to make sure they understand that, that he, ha- he still has an attraction for them even though they have uh, messed up in so many different ways. No, the inclusion of the word brethren here is important because it is rem- it's a reminder that as confused and as carnal as this group is, they are still believers. We're not talking about a group that is made up of primarily unbelievers. These are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are saved, and just because you're saved, it doesn't keep you from theological error or from error in the Christian life. Remember, we're not talking about a group here that is spiritually mature. We have to remind ourselves of who this congregation is. We can go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Just hold your place and turn back there and let's have a little reminder because what has happened in the distortion on spiritual gifts in the modern church is that the Pentecostals and Charismatics want to say that you don't really experience the Holy Spirit. You're not really mature. You don't really have everything God has for you unless you're speaking in tongues, unless you have the gift of healing, unless you believe in our view of the spiritual life. Then you will have it made. You really have to have a, a more advanced view than you have. And it's amazing that here was a congregation, the only congregation, the only congregation in the New Testament time that had a problem with tongues that was trying to practice the gift of speaking in tongues is a congregation that has been reamed out again and again and again by the Apostle Paul for their disobedience to God, for their arrogance, for the fact that they're operating on the human viewpoint, philosophical presuppositions of Greek culture. They're the most worldly and carnal congregation in the ancient world. And yet in modern world, in the perversion that comes from the satanic lie, people want to think, oh, let's go follow the Corinthians in their error as if, and, and try to make tongues some sign of super-spirituality. In 1 Corinthians 3, 1, Paul said, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual. There's that same word, the same word that's used for spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. I could not speak to you as spiritual. And here it has the idea of those who are spiritually mature, that is, those who are living in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you are not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. And the word for carnal is sarkikos, meaning fleshly, flesh being a term for the sin nature. You are still living according to the sin nature, for where there, there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and living like mere men? In other words, you're living like an unbeliever. And because you're living on the sin nature, you're not walking by the Spirit, your life reflects that in all of these divisions and in all of your arrogance. And this was part of the problem with the spiritual gifts, is that there were those even then who were thinking that if you had those flashy gifts of speaking in tongues or interpretation or miracles or healing, that you were somehow closer to God and you were more spiritual and they were lording that over the rest of the congregation, and they were operating on pure arrogance. 
So let's go back to our passage in, in 1 Corinthians 12. So he uses the word brethren. And the word brethren is a masculine plural noun from the Greek word adolphos, meaning brother. It is a term used to refer to both men and women. See, we live in, we've got another problem here in terms of a translation problem. And this is becoming more and more of a problem today. And that is that due to the influence of another uh, pagan idea in our culture, we have the development of liberal feminism. And in the development of liberal feminism, it's the idea that we have to have a language that is not patriarchal, a language that is not men-oriented. So we have to go in and we have to, we can't use pronouns like he, and we can't come along and use uh, words in the Bible like brother, and when it talks about the fact that uh, believers are sons of God, then somehow we have to change that because this is sexist language. And it's, uh, it's masculine language, and we have to do away with this. And it, it betrays a political agenda that is being forced, ram-crammed and jammed into language. And most of us are suddenly being influenced on, on this to one degree or another. And I know that even in the 80s, I noticed in more and more conservative biblical commentaries, then instead of talking about mankind, they would talk about humankind. And there was all of this emphasis on gender-inclusive language. And we have to teach people about the nature of language. And this is true in almost every language in the world. I'm not an expert on every language, so I don't know, and I can't make a universal statement. But on the languages that I have studied... These are linguistic concepts having to do with with the way languages form. And because the entire human race came from Adam, the entire race, male and female, is referred to as mankind. They did not derive from men and women. There's not, a, as we've studied in Genesis, there wasn't a separate creation of the woman independently from the man. She is taken from the side of the man. So there is a unity in the race that goes back to one man. This is why you speak of the race in a male term, is that it all derives from Adam. So you may, whether you realize it or not, much of this gender-inclusive language has at its very core the acceptance of an evolutionary view of human origins. And it's just these, these very subtle things that seep in. And wh when you catch yourself speaking this way and following these new conventions, you realize that when you change your terminology, it changes the way you think. Because your thinking is based on the words that you use. And let me give you an example biblically of what happens. Now, as you look at some of these modern translations that come out, what they will do is they will they will try to become gender inclusive. We certainly don't want to offend any women and make them think that they're not included in this. Uh, rather than educating people, as I've just tried to do, they, they just want to pander to feminist uh, political correctness. And so they'll change the, inter change the translation to, Now Concerning Spiritual Gifts, Brothers and Sisters. And one place where you see a theological problem creep in is in James 
And in the NET Bible, which is the perverted translation that was developed by the uh, faculty of the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary, and I say it's perverted because consistently it portrays a lordship view of, of salvation. It betrays a reformed view of the spiritual life and a false view of faith in Christ. Consistently, they take the phrase that's in the New Testament that involves a genitive construction, faith of Christ, and they take it as a, as a subjective genitive, the faithfulness of Christ, as opposed to an objective genitive, faith toward Christ. And there's a big difference. If you're saved by the faithfulness of Christ, then there's no volition on your part. And every time you have that phraseology in the New Testament, it's historically been taken, in, in most English translations, it's been taken as faith in Christ. But they've perverted that, and I think it's very subtle introductions of heresy. But nevertheless, the problem we're addressing here is brothers and sisters. In James 3.1, they translated it, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will be judged more strictly. So therefore, it is talking to teachers, and here the idea in the ancient, in the early church was teachers, was pastors and teachers. This isn't talking about Sunday school teachers. Sunday school wasn't developed until the early 1800s, folks. It was developed as an evangelistic tool to reach kids in the inner city, in cities like Chicago and Philadelphia, in the 1830s and 1840s, and it was usually conducted separately from the church building and was conducted in different locations around the city, usually around 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday afternoon. It did not have anything to do with the local church at that time. So when you look at this word and it says, not many of you should become teachers, don't think in terms of a Sunday school teacher. Don't think in terms of uh, some home Bible study. This is talking about pastors here. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers and sisters. See, when you change that from Adolphos brothers to make it mean brothers and sisters, what have you said about who can be a pastor? All of a sudden, you're subtly introducing the idea that women can be pastors. James 3.1 in the New Living Translation does the same thing. Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged by God with greater strictness. See, the more you translate it this way, and the NIV has just come out with a, uh, a gender-inclusive translation. And these should be uh, just... Uh, thrown away because they are absolutely useless and perverted and they don't provide us with any any sound teaching. In fact, they open the door to tremendous error and the problem is what we see in the last part of verse 1 and that is an ignorance, an ignorance of doctrine, an ignorance of divine viewpoint and a willingness to be ignorant of the, the cultural and cosmic influences on biblical interpretation. So Paul says, Now concerning uh, spiritual gifts, our spirituals, uh, brethren. 
And brethren is a term that is used to refer to both men and women, and it is not a sexist term, and it is not a patriarchal term. And anybody who thinks that, that thinking is simply a reflection of the fact that you need to uh, flush out some human viewpoint thinking in your own soul. And then Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware. Actually, it's the idea of ignorant, uninformed. Uh, it's a mild term. Unaware it just sounds rather passive. It's the Greek word agnoeo. It's a present active infinitive, and the infinitive uh, here simply uh, further completes the idea of the main verb, which is I uh, do not want. He has uh, negated the verb thelo, which is the present active indicative, meaning to to want something or to desire something. So Paul says, I do not want you to be to be ignorant, to be unaware, to be uninformed, untaught. And obviously they are untaught. They've un, they're uninformed on spiritual gifts, and because of that they are making some serious problems. The problem is one of ignorance, and this is always a problem for the apostle Paul. He wants to correct everyone's ignorance. See, the purpose for the local church has to do with teaching, not preaching per se. See, we have two models have come into the Christianity uh, in terms of thinking about the local church. The first model, the one that dominates today, is what should be called a social model social model, and under the concept of a social model, that this is a place where I'm going to go and I'm going to meet friends, I'll develop a, a romance, I'll get in, I'll find a, a, a good social life. Oh, and by the way, we might learn a few things about God. So we'll write God down there in very small letters. But the main idea there is to emphasize this idea of fellowship and fellowship is understood as horizontal fellowship between people. But the biblical view of the local church, the biblical model of the local church, is that it is a place for education. An education where the focus is on teaching. See, the way modern man looks at much you have the emphasis on preaching. And the thrust of preaching, although there may be some teaching in preaching, the thrust of most preaching has to do with, with exhortation or encouragement. Now, Romans 12.2 says that we are to not to be conformed to the world, but to be, we are to renew our thinking. Now, you don't renew your thinking by simply being encouraged to live a moral life or, or an ethical life or a righteous life. You receive, you receive the ability to renovate your thinking by being taught, by having human viewpoint juxtaposed to divine viewpoint, by learning how to, how to think critically about your own thinking so that you can replace the human viewpoint in your soul with the divine viewpoint of God's Word. Therefore, the primary emphasis in the church is on teaching. The person who is most equipped, both in terms of spiritual gift and training, to do this teaching is the pastor-teacher. 
and not the Sunday school teacher. And yet what happens in most churches is you have a pastor who majors on preaching, and he's going to spend most of his time during the week organizing the church, doing administration, spend some time working on that message on Sunday morning. Sometimes he might teach twice a week. He'll preach on Sunday morning. If he has more than one service, he'll preach the same sermon every service. And then on Wednesday night, he'll have some teaching, but it usually isn't very profound. The problem here is that that he has the vast majority of his people are going to show up on Sunday morning. So when he has the greatest opportunity to affect their thinking, he's just going to encourage them. And when he has the smallest attendance, which is on Wednesday night, what's he going to do? He's going to teach them. So he gets everything backwards, and very few people really learn how to think biblically. So the purpose of the pastor-teacher is to teach the Word so that people can learn to exchange the human viewpoint in their soul for divine viewpoint. A, the thrust of the teaching is fellowship with God. That is what our spiritual life is all about, is rapport with God. And rapport with God is based on two things, as we've seen in, in our study of 1 John and 2 John. The first element has to do with being in fellowship or being in right relationship after confession of sin. So we have to be in fellowship, but we also have to have right doctrine. This was the problem in First and Second John is that they had a danger of false doctrine from a false Christology. So fellowship with God is based on having our sins dealt with, and having right doctrine in our soul. The byproduct of that, John said in 1 John 1, is that we can have then have fellowship with other believers. So, see, the goal isn't fellowship with other believers. The goal is fellowship with God through sound teaching and thinking divine viewpoint. And then the byproduct of that is fellowship with other believers. That's secondary. It is not something you strive for. It's something that, that you get afterward. Let me give you an illustration. You go off to a university. You send your children off to a university or college to get an education. Do you send them to college for their social life? No, you don't. Are they going to have a social life? Probably more than you hope. And you had more social life in college or university than you should have had, and I did too. But you see, when you make education the goal and the purpose, and your model is an education model, it doesn't negate a social life. I've been in churches that have emphasized social life, and you've had terrible social life. I mean, I've been in some churches where uh, there was no social life at all, or there wasn't anybody I wanted to have a social life with at all. And in some of those churches, they had great teaching, and I didn't care because I was learning a lot about the Bible. And I've been in some other churches that were accused of having bad social life, and I've had tremendous social life there because there were other believers who were growing and advancing in the Word. And most of the time, social life has to do with what you put into a local congregation. But it doesn't have anything to do with the purpose for the church. The purpose for the church is to teach. Now, that doesn't mean you should be antisocial. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be friendly. That doesn't mean you shouldn't be kind to other people and get to know other people, but that's not why you're there. 
You're not at church for social life. That's not the reason. But we should always be kind and friendly and exercise uh, impersonal love and, in some cases, personal love towards others that we meet and get to know in a local congregation. It's not a place to just go sit and act as if everybody else is somewhere else. You know, there's 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 nothing wrong with having a social life in a local congregation. But that's not why we're there. That's just a secondary secondary product. So Paul addresses the fact that he needs them to be informed, not uninformed. And the only way to be informed is to be well taught. Paul continuously has confronted ignorance in local congregations in Romans 2.4, Romans 6.3, Romans 10.3 and 1 Corinthians 10.1, he deals with the problems of ignorance using this same word. In Romans 2.4, the problem was being ignorant of God's grace, that the Jews were ignorance of God's grace. And in that particular passage, he was talking about grace as something that was designed to provide an opportunity to repent, that is, to change your thinking, not that grace was to be a license to sin. In Romans 6.3, the problem of ignorance had to do with the fact that they were ignorant about the impact of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's going to be a background problem here in 1 Corinthians 12 as well. We'll cover that when we get to 1 Corinthians 12.13. Then in Romans 10.3, there was a problem about ignorance among the Jews that the law could not supply righteousness for salvation. And in 1 Corinthians 10.1, the problem is ignorance about Israel and the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament and understanding the Old Testament is providing examples of the doctrines taught in the New Testament. So Paul continuously challenges ignorance. One of the basic problems is that believers are ignorant of doctrine. So he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be unaware. And this verse forms the topic sentence for chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. So we will have three chapters dealing with spiritual gifts. So in light of that, let's get an introduction to the doctrine of spiritual gifts, an overall survey, just an overall orientation to the doctrine of spiritual gifts. First point has to do with the definition for spiritual gifts. A spiritual gift is a talent, ability, or aptitude that is sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation for performing a particular service in and for the body of Christ. Let me go over that again. It's a talent, ability, or aptitude. It's a certain ability that has a supernatural origin. It is not a natural source. It is not something you had as an unbeliever that uh, now you can use for Christ. See, when you were an unbeliever and you were playing the piano when you were seven or eight years old, and then you get saved, playing the piano is not your spiritual gift. Playing the piano isn't anybody's spiritual gift, by the way. Singing isn't anybody's spiritual gift. Those are natural talents. These are talents, abilities, or aptitudes that are supernatural in their source. They're sovereignly bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit. 
and it comes at the instant of salvation. You don't have any choice in the matter. The moment you trusted Christ as your Savior, you were given one or more spiritual gifts. And those gifts were given in different strengths. Some people have a gift in a, in some gifts in a stronger measure or greater measure than other gifts or than other people. So it's bestowed on every believer in the church age by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation for performing a particular service. They are service oriented. The function of a spiritual gift is not for your uh, growth, not for your aggrandizement, not for attention on you. It is for you to serve the body of Christ. So the purpose for the spiritual gifts is to serve the body of Christ. They are in and for the body of Christ. This is why believers need to be, if at all possible, involved in a local church assembly because the function of the spiritual gift isn't in relationship to your job outside the church. It's not in relation to your family. It's not in relationship to unbelievers it is in relationship to the body of Christ there are three passages that discuss spiritual gifts in depth and those are Romans 12:6 to 8 1 Corinthians 12 Ephesians 4:11 and there is a mention of the division of spiritual gifts in Hebrews 2 verse 4 now, point number two, let's look at the biblical terms. We've done this a little bit already. There are three biblical terms used. The first is the one we mentioned in our passage in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, pneumaticon, from the singular, ver- singular adjective pneumaticos, and this emphasizes the source and nature of the gift. It's from the Holy Spirit, and the nature is it's related to your spiritual life. So it emphasizes the source and nature of that gift, that it relates to the spiritual life of the believer. Pneumaticos. Then the second word is charisma. Not the magazine, the spiritual gift. Charisma. And this emphasizes the grace nature, that it is a gift. It's not something that is earned or deserved. It's not based on any merit in the believer. And in some believers, the spiritual gift may in fact enhance a natural ability. Some people may have a natural ability towards teaching. And then they are given the spiritual gift of teaching, which means that they uh, really have an extra measure of teaching ability. In others, the spiritual gift may have nothing to do with their natural talents, or it may not be directly related to their natural talents. So charisma emphasizes the grace nature of the gift. And then Hebrews 2.4 uses the word merismos, which has to do with the fact that they are distributed or apportioned. There is a distribution. Not everyone has the same gifts. There are, there's a division made by the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 2.4 says, God also, bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various ministries and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And that's a mistranslation. It should be in divisions or apportionments of the Holy Spirit. The word gift is not found in Hebrews 2.4. It's the distribution or apportionment, merismos, of the Holy Spirit, indicating its origin. 
Well, those are the first two points. We'll have to wait till next time to get the rest of the points in the summary of the doctrine of the spiritual gifts. We've covered point one, the definition, and point two, the, the biblical terms. And next time we will get into the rest of this passage and start getting into the gifts themselves in verse 2 and following with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for the challenge that it presents us to think biblically and to be informed, to know what your word says. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, we pray that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do to be saved is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't uh, need to change your life. You don't need to go through some sort of religious experience. You don't need to make a bargain with God or join a church or any other thing. Salvation is not based on what any of us does. It is based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You're saved by faith alone, a non-meritorious act whereby you appropriate Christ's death for yourself. And at that instant of believing that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you were given His righteousness, and you were saved or justified because you now possess that perfect righteousness of Christ. Father, we thank you for what we've studied today and pray that you would help us to understand this very clearly. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.